The first reading is from Psalm 8 on page 386 of your Pew Bibles. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. From the lips of children and infants you have ordained praise because of your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You made him ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet, all flocks and herds and the beasts of the field, the birds of the air and the fish of the sea, all that swim the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. The second reading today is Hebrews chapter 2, verse 5, and that's on page 846. Shall we wait for the birds to die down? Or? <laughs> it is not to angels that he has subjected the world to come, about which we are speaking. But there is a place where someone has testified. What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor and put everything under his feet. In putting everything under him, God left nothing that is not subject to him. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to him. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. In bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. Both the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family, so Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers. In the presence of the congregation, I will sing your praises. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, he says, here am I and the children God has given me. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason, he had to be made like his brothers in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Therefore, holy brothers, who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, the apostle and high priest whom we confess. He was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses, just as the builder of a house has greater honor than the house itself. 
For every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house, testifying to what would be said in the future. But Christ is faithful as a son over God's house, and we are his house if we hold on to our courage and the hope of which we boast. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. It's a privilege to bring the word of God to you, and it's a bit more comfortable than it was at 8 o'clock. It's warmed up a bit. Uh, Let me pray to begin. Uh, Heavenly Father, by your Holy Spirit, please allow our minds to concentrate and soften our hearts to receive your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you'd like to take notes, there should be an outline on the screen. Uh, Let me begin with a question. Have you ever experienced a leader who was aloof, a leader who was out of touch with ordinary people at work or in a club or the government? You might say to me, Reese, I haven't just experienced such a leader, I've suffered under one. Uh, In in past times, centuries ago, uh, leaders used to think of themselves as born to rule, but certainly not anymore. It's a great crime of modern leadership to think of yourself that way. It's a great crime, a terrible tragedy for a leader when people say, you're out of touch, you're aloof, you don't have anything in common with the ordinary person. And politicians will bend over backwards to tell their story of humble beginnings. So you might remember when uh, Malcolm Turnbull became leader of the federal opposition uh, and his opponent said, look, this is a millionaire banker. What does he have in common with ordinary Australians? And he was very quick to respond, look, I grew up in a unit with my dad, a single parent. Uh, and on the other side, uh, Kevin Rudd, his opponents, uh, sorry, his supporters have played up his humble beginnings in rural Queensland, whereas his opponents say, look, his wife is a millionaire. Uh, why, why is it that uh, leaders don't want to be aloof? Why is it that we don't want a leader who is aloof, who is out of touch? Probably because we fear that they won't really care about us and our problems. And because they uh, won't care, they won't be able to help us and our problems. They'll leave us behind. But on the other hand, we don't want a leader who is too much like us. We don't want a leader who is uh, as powerless as us, as trapped by the same problems as us. We want someone who can rise above and be effective in bringing us out of our situation. We wonder now, are we asking too much of our leaders? Are we hanging on to an unrealistic hope about them? Well, we have high expectations of leadership, and in fact, that's a good thing, because that's what humans were actually designed for. You see, Hebrews 2 verse 5 starts by telling us that the world to come, which God is bringing, won't be ruled by angels. We learn chapter 1 that Jesus is superior to angels. And the writer now quotes the Old Testament, where we learn someone else will be in charge of the world. It's about this passage in the Old Testament from Psalm 8 
It's about the extraordinary place that God has given us, humanity, over creation. What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honour and put everything under his feet. So we don't just happen to be smarter than the animals. God created us to rule over creation. Uh, Even though we're so small in God's universe, God has given us this dignity. He's crowned us with glory and honour. Well, does that feel like life to you? Would that accurately describe your life as crowned with glory and honour? Would it describe our world? We, We can master so much technology, literature, music, and yet we can also master lying and division and war. For all the amazing things we can do, none of us lives without sin and none of us can escape suffering and death. We fall short of the glory of God. We fail to rule as God intended. Yet Jesus has succeeded where we have failed. He has fulfilled our destiny. This is the first point. In verse 9, But we see Jesus, who is made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honour. So here is a true human. See, Jesus' resurrection, it shows us that he is the one that's going to rule the world as God intended. He is the leader who will deliver, who will meet God's expectation for humanity to rule creation as it should be. But notice what kind of leader this is. Notice how he reached his glory. It was through the suffering of death. He's crowned with glory and honour because he suffered death, says verse 9, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. See, far from being an arrogant leader, from a tyrant or just distant from us, he's so humble that he's willing to experience death and death for us. When someone's willing to suffer for you and then goes through with it, you know that they love you. You know that they're not distant from you. And this is the extraordinary journey of Jesus, that he became lower than the angels, one of us, and he was so humble that he died for us and then rose again in glory, returning to God. But why did Jesus have to suffer to reach this glory? Why did it have to be this way? Isn't this kind of death, a death on a cross, a scandal that a leader would want to cover up? Well, far from being embarrassed by Jesus' suffering, the Bible never is. It says it's entirely appropriate to God's plan. Now, this, is, this brings us now to the second point. You see, it says in, in verse 10, it was fitting. It was appropriate for God to make Jesus, who's the author of our salvation, perfect through suffering. Now, what does it mean that Jesus was made perfect? It doesn't mean that he was morally lacking in any way. Well, what it's saying is that through the experience of what he suffered, God has qualified Jesus for his role. It's about being qualified by what he experienced. I mean, we want our doctors to be qualified by our experience, not just their intrinsic ability. You don't want to just hear from your doctor, I'm a really smart guy and I did my degree over the internet. You want a qualified surgeon to have successfully used a scalpel, first on animals and then on humans, and been successful on both. Well, Jesus was qualified by what he suffered, and his job was to be the author 
of our salvation, to bring us to glory. As we heard in the kids' talk, Jesus is one who shares his greatness with us. Now, the author of salvation, the idea there is like a pioneer, a trailblazer. The idea is that Jesus has opened up the way for glory for us and then he leads us along. If you remember any of your Australian history, and some of you won't because you grew up overseas, but the Blue Mountains uh, were first crossed by uh, Blacksland, Wentworth and Lawson, as far as I remember, and no one else uh, had been able to, no European had been able to find a way across before then. Um, But after Blacksland, Wentworth and Lawson found a new way going across the ridge lines, they opened up the other way for others. Others could follow their path. And when you drive over the Blue Mountains today, you are following their path. Well, that's what Jesus has done as the author of our salvation. He's opened up the way for glory, the way to what God had intended for us to be ruling, the way God had intended. He's done that for us. But it's not a professional relationship with us that he has. It's a family one. His suffering on the cross has made us holy, a holy family for God. So verse 11 says, Both the one who makes men holy, i.e. Jesus, and those who are made holy, Christians, are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. It's amazing that as Christians we can call Jesus our brother. We call him our Lord, We sing songs to him as our Lord, and rightly so, because that's what he is. But he is also our brother. He is one of us. But isn't it even more remarkable that he calls us brother, sister? He knows who we are. He knows our sin and our weakness, and yet he is not ashamed to call us brother. How easily we're ashamed of others who are really our brothers. I can remember at work colleagues who would poke fun of Christians and this kind of fear dwelling up inside me, would I speak up and say something to defend them or not? Or how often can we call each other brother in Christ, sister in Christ, but not love them in this way? Remember that Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers. So at the end of this letter, we're commanded, keep on loving each other as brothers. Jesus calls us brother. We should love each other as brothers. That's the kind of leader he is. But how does does his suffering work? How does it really benefit us? Well, this is the third point. You see, what makes Jesus' suffering effective is not just Jesus' perfection, but that his suffering was genuine human suffering. He was... And he is truly one of us. You see, last week in Hebrews 1, the emphasis was Jesus being God. Jesus is God's final word to us. His definite, definitive word because he is truly God. And so it's a message we must pay attention to. But here, and this is something we easily forget, is that Jesus was truly human. And the writer really, really wants us to get that. He says in verse 14, Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity. And verse 16, he had to. He had to be made like his brothers in every way. Well, the technical word for this that Christians have used is the incarnation. That is God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, 
becoming truly human. Uh, and throughout the, church, throughout the history of the church, there's always been the temptation that Jesus only seemed to be human, or that he was kind of superhuman. He was human, but not like us. To use a modern example, you know, the Terminator movies, outside it's a human, inside it's a superhuman robot. Well, people have thought similar things about Jesus. He wasn't really human like us. He wasn't really as weak as us. But no, the Bible's telling us here, God's Word is telling us he was truly human and truly God in the one person. And why is this so important, that he was truly human like us? Well, verse 17. For this reason, he had to be made like his brothers in... uh, Sorry, verse 16. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. He had to become like us to help us. He didn't come to help angels. He came to help us. He came to heal us. And to heal us, he needed to become one of us. You see, so committed was he to us, so, so much did he love us, he didn't just stand back and watch us from a distance. He didn't just watch us... Uh, suffering under the curse of death, suffering in our sins. No, he fully entered into our condition in order to free us from it. And there are four ways uh, in verses 14 to 18 as this is expressed, four, four purposes of the incarnation, four ways that he helps us. He destroys the devil. He frees us from the slavery to fear of death. And he becomes our high priest who helps us when we're tempted. Fourthly, he makes atonement for our sins. It's a lot in there, but this is kind of like a a bit of an overture for the rest of the book. All these things will be unpacked as we go through Hebrews. And they're all related. And at the heart of them, I think, is Jesus' atonement for our sins. He's completely paid our debt. He's turned aside God's anger so we can now stand before God, right with him, friends with him. And we'll hear a lot more about that in Hebrews. And we'll hear a lot more about Jesus being our high priest who gives us direct access to God. But one thing I want to pick up this morning is something we easily forget. Jesus helps us in our temptation. In verse 18, because Jesus himself suffered... When he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. You see, as truly human, his temptations were real. When he was in the desert, not having eaten for days and days, he truly was hungry. He really was tempted when the devil approached him and said, Come on, turn that stone into bread. Follow my way. When he was in the garden the night before he was crucified. He truly was tempted to not go ahead with it. He knew the pain that was ahead of him. Yet in each case, he was victorious. He knows what it's like to be tempted, but he's conquered. He's the leader who understands what it's like for us when we're tempted, and yet he has overcome, and he overcomes for us. In chapter 4, verse 15 of Hebrews, and we're told we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. That's the kind of help we need, isn't it? 
Why, why do we try to face temptations by our own strength? Why do we think uh, no one else understands the pressures I face at work, in my family? Uh, why do we think God can't understand? He does. He sent his son as one of us. He knows and he can help us. He is willing to help us. I also want to focus today on how Jesus' death frees us, how it frees us from the devil and the fear of death. You see, death isn't just a natural process. You see, that what we're told here is the devil cruelly holds the power of death over us. He enslaves us in a fear of death. You see, the power of death is when we die in our sins and we cannot escape God's judgment. But the fear of death pervades all our lives. Even non-Christians acknowledge this. You see, Woody Allen, the comedian, he joked that, I'm not afraid of death, I just don't want to be around when it happens. But he also had something much more serious to say. He also said, the fundamental thing behind all motivation and all activity is a constant struggle against annihilation and death. Death is absolutely stupefying in its terror and renders everyone's accomplishments meaningless. Great or small, that is our fate. And yet Jesus has intervened. As truly human, he faced death head on and he's broken it apart for us. He's broken it apart by rising from the dead. He's crushed Satan and the power Satan had over us by wiping clean all our sins on the cross. We all, we all know how cruel death is, don't we? How it overshadows our lives, how it separates us from those we love. This week I preached at my grandmother's funeral on this passage. And it was so sad to see her deteriorate in her final years. God was kind to me. He reminded me again through his word of the love and the power of Jesus. Yes, my mourning was real. Yes, we will miss her. But Jesus has humbled himself and sacrificed himself to free us from the power of death. Our only hope is to belong to him. What a leader we have in Christ. What a leader who is one of us and yet so powerful, someone who brings us to glory. We do make unrealistic demands on our leaders, don't we? Not to be out of touch, but to be powerful, to understand us and yet be flawless. At the end of the day, they are flawed like, flawed like us. Yes, we still need to obey them, the Bible says that, but you know, how can President Obama possibly live up to the tag of the hope of the world, as some people gave him? How could anyone live up to that tag? Well, Jesus has. Jesus is the leader, the better leader that God has provided for us. Our brother, one of us, who is the author of our salvation, who brings us to glory. So I want to finish with two responses that chapter 3 gives us to Christ. 
The first one is to fix your thoughts on Jesus. Chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, holy brothers who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, the apostle, the one God sent, and high priest whom we confess. He was faithful. Uh, One writer wrote this about this verse. He said, Surely no one else in heaven and earth deserves our consideration more than Jesus. Consider what Jesus is in himself. Consider what Jesus is to us and act accordingly. I think one thing for us is to not be distracted from Jesus. Fix our thoughts on him. Don't be distracted from him. Remember the help that God's provided, the lengths that Jesus has gone to to help you. We don't need spiritual subcontractors to get to Jesus because he is so distant. We don't need to pray to saints or to pray to Mary, nor do we need the blessings of super preachers. All these things take away from what Jesus has done for us. And yet also we can distract ourselves by trying to rely on our own strength to endure through this life of hardship and suffering and temptation and forgetting that we have a merciful high priest who is able and wants to help us in our temptation. The second response is to hold on to your hope in Jesus. Hold on to your hope. 3 verse 6 says... Uh, hold on to our courage and the hope of which we boast. We've got such a wonderful leader that we have such a wonderful hope. It's not an uncertain hope in a leader who we think will probably fail like all the rest. No, he's a leader that never fails. And so we have courage in our hope. We have boasting. We don't think much about boasting as Christians, but we boast only in the Lord, don't we? We rejoice in what he has done. We are proud of what Jesus has done. We trust what Jesus has done. The author of our salvation, who's freed us to bring us to glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your wonderful kindness to us. Thank you that you sent your only son into the world to to humble himself, to truly become one of us. He knows what it's like to be us. He knows our weakness and our suffering. And yet he didn't sin. He never gave in to temptation. And he rose from the dead. Thank you that he was so humble that he was willing to die for us, to heal us, to free us, Lord, we pray that we would fix our thoughts on him, that we wouldn't be distracted by others, that we'd hold fast to our hope in Jesus with courage and rejoicing. Amen.